The Cancer Assist Show, hosted by Dr. Bill Evans and brought to you by the Cancer Assistance Program. Help when you really need it. Hello, I'm Dr. Bill Evans, and you're listening to The Cancer Assist Show. And uh, I'm glad you're listening because today we have a really important topic to talk about, uh, something that I think most doctors and maybe most patients aren't really aware of, and that's about occupational therapy. So I'm really uh, feeling very blessed today to have a guest, Sarah Shawani, who's an occupational therapist here in Hamilton, working at CBI Home Health, and who has um, a great interest in uh, not only occupational therapy, but how it applies to cancer patients. And that's what's really important today. And as you know, the Cancer Assistance Program does provide a variety of free services to cancer patients in our area. And amongst them are assistive devices, various things like wheelchairs and uh, rollators and commode chairs and so on. And these are some of the tools that an occupational therapist deals with. You know, um, Sarah, welcome and uh, really great to have you here. Thank you. Thank and you, Dr. Evans. Looking so forward to hearing from you. You know, one of the things about an occupational therapist, I think the name's misleading. It sounds like it's my occupation is I'm a lawyer or I'm a <laughs> this or that and something to do with therapy for people who have a particular occupation. But it really yes. is about the activities of daily life as much as anything, right? Yes. So you're, you got into this. Maybe you just tell a little bit about your background. How were you attracted to occupational therapy, yeah. where you did your schooling, and how you got interested in um, helping cancer patients? Absolutely. So first off, Dr. Evans, I just wanted to thank you as well as the Cancer Assistance Program for having me on your podcast today. It's truly a pleasure to be here. Um, so with respect to my, uh, yeah, my, my history, so uh, my first exposure to occupational therapy was actually um, it, when I was completing my studies at uh, Queen's University. So I was pursuing my undergraduate studies in psychology. And I've always just had this inner drive to help, whichever way I can. So throughout my high school career, I was volunteering at the uh, Alzheimer's Society. And uh, I thought naturally, okay, well, you know what, psychology seems like a nice career to pursue. I'd be able to assist people. So I was in my uh, third year completing my studies at, uh, at Queen's when my grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And uh, that was, that was a, a big shock because um, it, it happened rather quickly. And it was our first, my family's first experience with someone who did have Alzheimer's. And my grandmother had always maintained that she wanted to be at home. So we determined early on that, okay, well, our grandmother is going to stay, but we didn't really know what that entailed. Mm. So it was, like I said, quite a shock because we weren't really prepared for all the changes that we were going to experience. So when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, we were connected to, at that time it was called the Community Care Access Center, but now they go by the LIN, the Local Health Integration Network. And the, the LIN at that time connected us with home care providers. So um, we were referred to uh, personal support workers who came in to assist my grandmother with her, um, her bathing and uh, dressing and toileting. But we were also recommended to have an occupational therapist come to the house. And what I was immediately struck by with the occupational therapist was just, it was a few things. The first was how holistic her approach was. Right, right. So, you know, she wasn't just focusing on mobility, on toileting. She was focusing on my grandmother's daily occupations, the daily activities that meant a lot to her. And that occupational therapist was focusing on what she could do to assist my grandmother right. with obtaining those needs. So 
number one was how holistic the profession is. Number two, how practical it is. And number three, how creative you can be with this profession. So I was observing this in the background while I was completing my studies. And I'd always just kind of been focusing on, um, you know, pursuing my career in psychology. And then uh, I was speaking with my sister and I said, you know what, these are my next steps for my career in psychology. And she said, Sarah, why aren't you considering this job as an occupational therapist? You've always been passionate about helping and, you know, you're enjoying being with grandmother. And I said, you know what, you're absolutely right. And I kind of needed that person to just kind of, you know, uh, bring that out for me. So I remember spending one entire night just researching occupational therapy. And it was like a light bulb moment where it just clicked. And I said, you know what, this is exactly what I want to do. So it was a bit of a change because I was, like I said, so focused on psychology. Yeah, mm-hmm. psychology. But then when I read about occupational therapy, I knew this is exactly what I wanted to do. So I then applied to Ontario universities. I ultimately chose McMaster University. Good choice. Oh yeah, <laughs> I gotta, gotta give a shout out to McMaster. It's just their, their approach to learning, the self-directed learning, problem-based right. learning, evidence-based, it just really clicked with me. So I went to McMaster University, completed my master's, and uh, my last placement was a community placement at, at CBI, which I loved. And like I said, when my grandmother was with us, I knew that I wanted to do communi- community work. I loved how the environment was considered when the occupational therapist was completing her work. So my last placement was in community and then I was hired um, right after my placement and the rest is history. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So you're in the community. Now occupational therapists can be found in a variety of different places. Absolutely. Can't Absolutely. So occupational therapists work in schools and private clinics, um, hospitals, rehabilitation settings, uh, community. So we are in a variety of, of settings. Absolutely. And in your particular case, I gather now you're focusing on sort of the inner city here in yes. Hamilton. Yes. That, I'm sure it poses some challenges. Yeah, it does. Um, so it, it challenges, but also I have to say it's, it's probably, for me, um, the most rewarding population I've, I've worked with. So um, like you said, Dr. Evans, I do work in the, in the inner city. So, um, you know, when we think about the social determinants of health, housing is such a a huge component, right? right. And, and, and we think about the physical components of housing, so air quality, um, you know, if there are any uh, biological, ha- biochemical uh, hazards, pest infestations. So, you know, when we think about the physical components, the psychological components, so thinking about, you know, when you're in a house, it's not just a shelter, it's a place where you seek comfort, where you seek security, right? A place for socialization, having people come over, socializing with others. So these are all things that contribute to health. And when you don't have those things, I mean, that can contribute to, to poor health, right? So when we look at the inner city, they are often the highest users of the healthcare system. They are, when you look at the, the statistics, um, they are the most frequent uh, users of going to the emergency uh, department. Um, and a huge issue is because they are often under-supported. So when I first started out at uh, my current my current job, um, I knew that I wanted to to work with this population because um, I just felt like I could contribute a lot. And uh, I, I appreciated the importance of the social determinants of health and working with this population, you really got to hit on all those social determinants. And that population has a variety of different healthcare needs. Mm-hmm. Now we're focusing on cancer in this podcast. Yeah. So maybe we could just talk a little bit about the particular challenges of the cancer patient, mm-hmm. um, not exclusively li- and living in the inner city, although 
There's probably a good deal of cancer there because the social determinants of health actually translate into increased cancer rates. Yes. But um, cancer patients can have a variety of different needs that an occupational therapist might meet, mm -hmm. uh, starting with uh, things related to the cancer itself, but mm -hmm. also its treatment, mm -hmm. and then the sort of psychological effects of having cancer. So it's kind of a wide range of potential opportunities, shall we say, for an occupational therapist to intervene in a constructive way. Yes, absolutely. So the, the approach that we take with all our clients, um, I know specifically we're discussing clients with, with cancer, but we approach the same uh, model, which is, first of all, being client-centered. So listening to the client's story, what are their priorities? What is meaningful to them? And I want to go back to what you initially said about the, the word occupational therapist, right? Because, and how you said that it can often be misleading because when you think of occupation, you automatically go to paid occupation, right. lawyer. Right. And what I say is that um, occupation is, you know, it's not totally wrong to think of, of jobs because we are focusing on the job of living, right? Exactly. So we exactly. are focusing on what activities are most meaningful to you? What gives you that sense of purpose? What gives you that sense of self-efficacy, of productivity, of meaning? And our goal is to try and do whatever we can, whether it's modifying the task, um, modifying the environment, or working on the individual skills to see how we can best have a fit between the person's skills and the occupation that they're doing. So you had brought up um, clients with, with cancer. So oftentimes, as, as you had noted, um, Clients with cancer, they do experience changes, whether related to cancer itself or the treatments. Oftentimes we see um, fatigue being a major issue. It's the commonest symptom cancer patients experience. Absolutely. Yeah. So when we are going in and we are uh, assessing a client's abilities, fatigue often comes up. So for that, we would like, okay, well, let's, let's talk about your, your daily routine. Walk me through, you, you wake up in the morning, how are you getting out of bed? Once you get out of bed, what is your next step? Are you getting dressed? If you're not getting dressed, why, why aren't you? Is it difficult for you to do so? Once you get dressed, you know, are you going to the bathroom? If so, how is the bathroom set up? Is your toilet seat too low? Are you then taking showers? If you're not taking showers, why is that? Is it because your, your bathroom isn't set up properly? Is it because, um, you know, you're afraid? So we really walk through the day with our clients try to get an idea of the typical day that they have. And if they are experiencing challenges, we try to determine why are those challenges arising. So giving you an example of fatigue. There's various interventions that we would do once we've determined that fatigue is, is an issue for a client. So a big thing is energy conservation strategies, right? So there's oftentimes we call it the, the four Ps. So planning, prioritizing, pacing, and positioning. So those four Ps are really important to consider when we're looking at energy conservation, because what it allows us to do is to look at the task at hand. So let's say bathing, okay? Clients will say, I'm, I'm too tired to take a shower by myself. Okay, well, how are you showering? Well, I'm standing in, in the shower. Well, that's a major issue right now, because when you're standing, you're using a lot more of your, your muscles and your energy, okay? So maybe we'll recommend something for the client to sit down on in their shower. We'll recommend a bath chair. Maybe we'll also recommend a handheld hose because when you're standing and the water's coming down at you, sometimes it's difficult to, to breathe and that can be um, quite overwhelming with all the water. So we'll give you a handheld hose, that way you can control the flow of the water. 
um, you know, planning when to shower. So in the morning, maybe you have more energy than at nighttime, right? So you plan your showers uh, in the morning time. Positioning. So we often recommend that, you know, trying to sit as much as possible because when you're standing, you're using up so much of your energy. So when you're getting dressed, instead of standing up and getting dressed, take a seat, put on your pants, slowly put up, you know, slowly pull up your pants, pace yourself, take breaks as needed. Um, so, you know, we recommend strategies, we recommend equipment. So like I said, with the, um, the bathroom equipment, that's just an example of what we would do to kind of modify the task to make it a bit easier for the client. So those are very practical things, the four P's, I'll try and remember yep. those. Uh, <laughs> I guess one of the things that I've always associated with occupational therapy is prevention of falls, which yes. are, can happen with just getting older, but with the cancer patient, just as you said, there's fatigue factors. And, yes. and um, so when you go into a home, what, what sort of things are you assessing in order to try and reduce the uh, possibility of a fall? Because a fall in a cancer patient who may have brittle bones, they may have yes. metastatic disease, could be just a, a terrible uh, event that really leads to their demise, quite frankly. Absolutely. So, so it's really, really important that they not fall. So yes. what, do, what does an OT do to try and help in that regard? Yes, I'm so happy you brought this up because false prevention is actually one of our primary focuses when we are entering a client's home. So what we do when we're looking at um, reducing the risk for falls, a big thing is um, assessing the environment for any obstacles or hazards. And that assessment starts the second that we're walking into the client's home. What does the access look like? Do we have stairs right. at the front porch? When we walk into the home, are we seeing scattered rugs all over the floor? And I, unfortunately, I don't know what it is, but people just love their rugs. <laughs> and, I, and I tell them and I, I say, you know what? Trip over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I say, you know what, they're, they're you know, aesthetically, they're, they're beautiful, but they yes. are a huge risk for yes. falls. So what we, we don't like you telling them to take them all no, off. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and I've learned this and I say, you know what? Uh, you know, the best thing would be to just remove it. Um, but if you don't want to remove it, then we recommend um, getting, they have these, um, uh, now the word is escaping, but these, these treads so that you can put under the rug so that it doesn't slip, doesn't slip as easily. Right, right. Or even just taping down Take the edges. The corners now, so exactly, trip on them. Yeah. exactly. So we look at the flooring, we look at the, the stairs, um, we look at the, um, we look at just the overall environment. And as, as I told you before, when we're, we're, when we're walking through the day with our clients, as they're explaining the day, we ask them to show us around their home. And as we're looking around, we're looking for key things. Like in the tub, do they have grab bars mm -hmm. to hold on to? Do they have a bath mat? Is the toilet seat very low? These are all things that can contribute to someone's fall. So we look at the environment. We also look at the person's um, physical abilities. So we do screens. Um, there's a very popular one called the timed up and go test, which is where we ask the person to, uh, they're taking a seat, we ask them to get up and walk 10 feet. So walk 10 feet uh, towards us and then walk 10 feet back to their, uh, their chair. And we time them. And if they do pass, if, if they are over 12 seconds, then they are determined to be at risk uh, for falling. And as they're walking, we're looking at their gait pattern. Are they demonstrating shuffled gait? Are they holding onto furniture? This is very common where mm -hmm. some of our clients do hold onto furniture when they're walking. And what we advise them is that it's risky because furniture is not going to hold you up. The wall's not going to hold you up if you fall. You do need a gait aid to hold onto. So as you alluded to before in your opening, you know, roller walkers, 
canes. These are all gate aids that could benefit clients. So we look at the person's um, abilities, we look at the environment. And in addition to looking at the person's physical abilities, we also assess their cognition. So, um, you know, cognition has been determined and especially if a client has dementia uh, or mild cognitive impairment, this can contribute to falls as well. Well, that's interesting because uh, a lot of patients who receive chemotherapy talk about a chemotherapy fog. Yes. And they don't, they're not as alert and, and yep. sort of quick as they used to be and they recognize that as a factor. And I think there are things even you offer in terms of how to fight the fog, so to speak. Yes. Uh, and, and what are some of those uh, aids that you provide? Absolutely. So the first thing that we do um, is first we'll do a screening tool. We'll administer mm -hmm. a cognitive screen just to assess where are the problem areas. And as you uh, mentioned before, yes, there is oftentimes they do allude to this having mm -hmm. this fog and decreased memory. So then we look at, well, how is this affecting your performance? So, you know, we do need our memory to remember to take our medications. Um, we do need memory to remember um, steps if we're going to prepare a meal or to attend appointments. So then we look at, okay, well, are these skills that we can work on with the client? Can we remediate? Okay, so can we, if we work on um, activities with the clients, worksheets, um, you know, uh, cognitive activities that can kind of help with remembering and help with kind of stimulating those patterns. But if we determine that, you know, it's at the point where we now need to compensate for that decreased memory. Then we look in the home to see, well, what kind of strategies can we use to make um, the environment uh, kind of trigger, trigger the memory? Trigger so the memory exactly, mm -hmm. so I'll give you an example. Uh, medications are often a big issue mm -hmm. with remembering to take your medication, especially when clients are on multiple different types of medications. Yes, they typically are as they get older and older. Absolutely. And by the time you're 80, you're probably taking eight or more different medications. That's exactly. the way it works. Yeah. yeah, and when they're in bottles, it's so hard to remember when you've taken uh, which medications. So we'd recommend first do um, dosets. So those are the, the grids that you then have to place your medication. Now, that is something that often clients or family members do. Um, but if that's challenging and clients don't have family members to assist with putting the medication in a dosette, then we recommend getting a blister pack from the pharmacy. That way, when providers are going into the home, we can track and see if the client, and the client themselves can track if they've taken their, their medication. If the blister pack isn't even working, then there are devices that have um, alarms that go off. So there's a great device right now that, that has been made, which is, um, so it, it automatically dispenses the medication at specific times. And if the client has not taken their medication, it'll actually it'll call, alarms. it'll alarm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you mentioned something else I, I'm not familiar with. I, I know about blister packs, but can you go into a pharmacy and actually have them prepare Absolutely. blister packs for you? Absolutely. I didn't know that. Yes. I wonder how many people do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's the thing, right? And that's why when we're going in, we're, we're advising our clients and saying, you know what, call your pharmacy, right. ask for a blister pack and the pharmacy, uh, typically does assist and they can also help with the delivery. A lot of pharmacies do deliver, um, you know, and then so that, that's an example for, for medication and, um, you know, cooking, right? So that can also be something that there's so many components uh, involved with, with cooking. So we often complete what's called a kitchen task assessment and we look at how our client is completing, is preparing a meal. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at, are they able to uh, provide the necessary attention? Are they sequencing? the steps in order to prepare the meal? Um, are they able to problem solve if they don't have the necessary ingredients? Are they able to problem solve? Um, are they able to multitask? And if we're seeing issues, 
Um, either we simplify the task by recommending, you know what, instead of preparing these meals, we'll recommend some easier meals to prepare. Or for finding, for instance, clients cannot find certain things in their cupboards. We'll recommend, well, maybe instead of having items, you know, located high up or below, keeping everything in a central position where it's easy to locate and maybe having images on the cupboards so that it can trigger that memory that, okay, this is the cupboard where I place all my dishes or, or, um, or these ingredients. So we look at, again, trying to modify the environment to facilitate performance. So you'd like to have you come over and reorganize our kitchen so I can find things when <laughs> my wife's not around. <laughs> Very practical uh, and helpful uh, steps to take. Yeah. Uh, when we're talking about falls, one of the things that came to mind is that um, some of the drugs that we use to treat mm -hmm. cancer uh, can produce a neuropathy and yeah. you can lose your, what we call medically proprioception and basically Things don't feel right, and you don't know exactly where your extremities are because they don't. Feed, you're not getting the signals to your brain that your feet are planted on the floor or they're going up a step. So that's a that's a challenge in terms of preventing falls and yes. ambulation as well, right? Absolutely, and and that's where when I was um, speaking before about when looking at the skills, it's it something that we can work on, or do we now need to kind of compensate, right. right? So if it's something that can be worked on, we'd often request for physiotherapy services. So, you know, as, as an occupational therapist, we work with um, many other disciplinaries. So we work with social work, we work with physiotherapy. And um, so if it's something that can be worked on, again, we'd refer to physiotherapy. If not, if we determine that, you know what, um, this is chronic and this is contributing to a lot of falls, then we look at getting the proper mobility aid in place. Now, for someone who does have neuropathy in their lower extremities, it's probably most ideal that they're not ambulating and that they are in something like a wheelchair. So we look at their upper body strength. Are they able to propel themselves in a wheelchair? If they're not able to propel themselves, do they have the support around them to push the client in a wheelchair? If the answer is no, then maybe we look at getting a power device. So we look at, um, I'm sure you see it a lot in, our, <laughs> in the Hamilton core, but they, you know, a, a scooter or a power chair. Right. And then we prescribe um, the necessary mobility device. Very good. Now, one of the things that struck me as I was doing some reading around occupational therapy is that I, I really think it's underutilized in the literature, mm -hmm. particularly in the cancer literature, uh, suggests that it is very much underutilized. And, why do you think that is and what can we do about it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think the reason why it's underutilized is, is um, what you said in the beginning is, is the, the term occupational therapist, it's, it's hard for people to really comprehend what that means. We should that invent means. a new term for it right well, here now. You know? <laughs> you know, I initially thought that, but then once you appreciate what, what occupation means, it, yes. it does make sense as yes. to why we are occupational therapists, right? Like so much, and that's what makes our jobs unique is because of that unique focus on occupation. But when I you go into a home and you say, I'm an occupational therapist, maybe you don't say that, well, but what, what do people, how do people respond to that? I, I do, and, and oftentimes it, there's a blank stare. Blank stare. Like, <laughs> like, uh, what, what, sorry, What's coming that? to, yeah. Somebody sent you? 
So even even when I when I call and I say, you know, my name is Sarah, I'm an occupational therapist. Right away, it's it's well, well what does that mean? And I'm and I'm happy to to I just automatically assume yeah. that I'm going to explain. You've got a ready speech. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is <laughs> this is what we learned in school is that you have to have your your two minute um, elevator blurb is what they call it when you meet someone for the first time in the elevator. How would you describe what you do? So what what we say is that you know my goal is to come into your home, assess your environment, assess how you're living, how you're performing your day to day activities and see what I can do to make it a bit more safe and help you be more independent in completing those activities. So going back to your question, I think there is um, just some, mis not misunderstanding, but just not enough understanding of, of what we what we focus on. Um, and uh, I think the word, awareness is increasing. I remember when I first started out, some of the referrals I'd received would often say OT slash PT. And oftentimes it's because there is definitely an overlap between the two professions. But I think initially there was an understanding that both professions do pretty much the same thing. Um, and I, you know, while there is overlap, we, we complement each other, um, but we definitely have our own uh, focus. So I think, um, you know, with increasing awareness, more and more physicians, more and more clients are becoming aware, but it's just a matter of bringing out that, that awareness. I think one of the other problems is that uh, in cancer clinics anyway, mm -hmm. there's, there's such a, a focus on the symptoms of the cancer, whether the cancer is responding to treatment. A lot of people waiting, so there's a pressure of time mm. to see people make decisions about their therapy and not necessarily think about the whole person, That's a, very good a, a holistic approach. Yes. Uh, and I'm not sure that in our training as physicians, and perhaps the same as true for nurses, I'm not sure, but certainly as a physician, my training didn't include a lot of training and knowledge mm -hmm. about occupational therapy. And unless the, the family actually sort of raised issues and pushed a bit, I don't think physicians would spontaneously raise it with the, with the patient or their caregivers, like how well are you getting on in your home or have you right. been assessed for risk of falls or things like that. So yes, I, th I think one of the hopes out of doing this podcast is that maybe those who are looking after family members who have cancer become more aware of what an occupational therapist can do and maybe even go into the clinic to support their their loved one with some questions like, uh, or more importantly, perhaps in questions, they might say, I'm, I'm concerned about my mother, my father, my aunt, because their home has this, that, and the other thing, which you think is kind of unsafe. You, you think we could arrange an occupational therapist to come yes. in and assess things. Yes, those are excellent points. Absolutely. And I, and I think that advocacy piece is so important. And just because something has been a certain way, oftentimes we'll go into homes and we'll see red flags, but people will just accept, well, that, that's just how they've always lived. But I think it's good to um, to advocate. If you're seeing some signs of family members struggling in their daily activities, you know, um, or if they're having falls, you know, falls are not a normal part of aging. This is something that we reiterate time and time again, you know, and oftentimes our clients will say, well, I had a fall, but you know, I, I'm not going to have it again. And, but no, the reality is, is that you if you do have will. a fall, your, your chances significantly <laughs> increase. Right. And, um, and especially with, uh, with cancer and, and the ch changes in cognition, the changes in physical functioning. Um, it's so important to not think of health as just the absence of disease. And this is going to the, the definition that the world health organization provides Health is not merely the absence of disease, it's 
the complete physical, social, and mental well-being of a person. And when you look at health from that standpoint, it really makes you appreciate all the aspects. And when you are focusing on occupation and keeping that engagement in daily activities, that really contributes to someone's recovery and, and their physical health as well, well right? It's the quality of their life. Absolutely. And, and those things make a difference to the, their actual survival. It's yeah. not just uh, um, something you sort of say, well, it's a nice to have. It actually makes a, a true difference yes. in the length of their survival if they're actually fully engaged and feeling safe and comfortable and positive and so on, they will yes. have a better outcome overall. Exactly. I do worry that a lot of, um, of uh, family members and patients are hesitant to tell doctors things or ask doctors, can we have something? Because it's like, well, the doctor knows best and the doctor will mm. tell us that we should have a physiotherapist, an occupational therapist or this or that. Um, and the reality is I, I would like people to understand um, Doctors are human, they don't know everything, and <laughs> it's worth asking them, raising the issues, because in the busyness of caring for a large number of cancer patients, the probabilities are pretty high they won't think about some of these issues in depth, and they don't know what your home is like. Yes. Um, they've probably not taken the time to ask a lot of questions about that. This isn't time in the day for all of those things, ideal as it would be. Yes. So, um, you know, and some cultures are more passive, and, and, and I would say a lot of the people who live in the inner city are rather passive too. Mm -hmm. So we need, uh, need people to be aware that they should be proactive yes. for their own care or for their loved one's care, and not just uh, accept that they go into the clinic room and have the doctor tell them what they're going to do and not ask about it, not make inquiries about supports in the home that might be beneficial Absolutely. to them and the quality of their life. Absolutely, Dr. Evans. And I think part of the, the fear as well when we are going into homes is, you know, if this occupational therapist comes in and they see all these, these issues, what does that mean for me? Are they going to, um, you know, make me make all these changes or make me move away from here? And that's, that's never the goal. The goal is to work with you. The goal is to keep you in your home. You know, and that's what I emphasize to my clients time and time again. By me coming in here, you know, we're we're a team, and we are working towards the same thing, which is having you live in your environment as long as possible. Um, and so that that advocacy piece and not being afraid to have people come in, because ultimately, our goal is to to educate, and we will make the the recommendations. Um, and we are always trying to be as client-centered as possible and make the whole process feel like you know we're working together uh, as a team. So practically speaking how does one make a referral for yeah. an occupational therapist? Great question. So uh, as I said before we um, there used to so the local health integration network they used to be called the community care access center they're now called the LIN. Um, so in Hamilton we have what's called the um, they're the H&HB so Hamilton, Niagara, Haldeman, Norfolk uh, uh, branch of the LIN. So the LIN accepts referrals from um, hospitals, from physicians, also they ref uh, accept referrals from self-referrals and family members. Okay. So it's just a matter of picking up the phone, calling the LIN, speaking with intake and saying you know what I have a family member or if you're calling for yourself, just saying, you know what, I'm calling for myself and I'm struggling at home with, you know, my day-to-day -day activities. Or you can say, you know, uh, my, my father, for instance, has had a fall. We need him to be assessed in the home. The LIN will then send out a referral to uh, a home health agency. So like the one that I, I work for, 
an occupational therapist picks up the referral and then we then make contact uh, with the client. And on the referral, we're given information about the client's um, medical condition, the focus of the intervention, the reason why the client you know, wanted the referral in the first place. And then if any family members want to be involved, we're given their contact information and then we can also contact family members to make sure that they are involved with this process. Now, I, I sort of get the part where you go in and do an assessment. Do you continue to follow them, the families? Do you keep coming back and visiting, saying how they're making out? Or maybe there's additional aids that could be put in place. Is that part yeah, of it? That, that's a great question. So typically when we're given, when we receive the referral, we're allotted a, a certain number of visits for during a certain time, mm -hmm. time frame. So typically it's about three to four visits over a three month time frame. Now, that can be adjusted. So especially in the inner city, funding is a huge issue that comes up time and time again. And funding takes a very long time. So when we assess the client and we prescribe the equipment, we're often involved with uh, pursuing funding for equipment and that can take a few months. So we typically are involved as long as, so as, long, as, long as the client um, is waiting for equipment, uh, awaiting funding. So that can take about three to four months. Once those goals have been achieved, oftentimes we do then uh, discharge the client, but they're always able to call the LIN and ask for services back. It's not that once the file is closed, that's it. It just means that we're not actively working on anything at this time. So we don't typically keep files open just for monitoring. Um, unless we're actively working on goals, we do close the file, but clients are always able to call the LIN back and they would reinitiate services right away if the client's needs change or their status changes at home. Okay. Now, I'm sure some of your clients have been cancer patients and have they benefited from time to time from the cancer assist oh, gosh. program <laughs> with equipment and so on? I can't, I can't um, state enough how, how helpful, how um, beneficial the cancer assistance program has been for our clients in, in Hamilton. So just to give you an idea, um, when we are seeing our clients, we typically can order up to two pieces of equipment for trial for one month. So this is through the LIN. Um, oftentimes our clients need more than just mm -hmm. the two pieces at home. Or after the one month is over, what do they do, do, then? They do then, right? right. So, so I suppose they're expected to purchase it. That, that's right, unless they um, are receiving social assistance where, where we can assist with pursuing funding, oftentimes clients are required to purchase this equipment privately. And this equipment is very expensive. Give us an idea of what things cost, like oh. a wheelchair. What's a well, standard wheelchair cost? Well, okay. So if you're going through, so I will say for wheelchairs, if the client is eligible, meaning they meet the criteria set out by the government, they would be eligible for 75% funding through the government. But there's cases where the government may deny them for various reasons in which case these wheelchairs, so just a, a basic manual wheelchair, can sometimes cost about $1,000, um, if not more. So very expensive, and for various reasons, I will say, number one, um, the wait time to get this, this uh, funding approved, um, or for other reasons why the government may deny, clients require this equipment urgently, especially now. when you, exactly. <laughs> Which Especially is why, if you just come out of the hospital. Oh, absolutely. And this is why I can't um, understate the importance of the Cancer Assistance Program is because when we need equipment now, we contact the Cancer Assistance Program. And I will say when I first started out 
eight years ago, there were a few different equipment loan cupboards and equipment loan programs. Those have all stopped. It's basically just really? the, absolutely. Yeah, it's very it's it's very difficult um, to run an equipment loan program. And the fact that the cancer assistance program has continued to to be there uh, to support our clients with cancer, I mean, they're an invaluable resource. So oftentimes. When I do go in and I see the client does have a diagnosis of cancer, in my first visit right away, I educate them about their services and I try to connect them. Um, I then prescribe the equipment and if I cannot get the equipment for trial through the LIN, or like I said, if they need additional equipment, I will call the cancer assistance program, determine if they have it in stock. And then I will write a prescription for the client if they have access to transportation to go and pick up the equipment or I will sometimes assist as well because a lot of my clients don't have um, cars or vehicles right, to access. Right. So um, yeah, it's not just the equipment cancer assistance has helped with. Ensure um, they've helped clients with um, briefs. I mean, even their um, support, uh, the supports that they provide, the transportation, uh, the, you know, they do provide free transportation to medical appointments. So it's just, especially because a lot of my clients are low income. Uh, you know, it's just, it's so amazing to have the Cancer Assistance Program in Hamilton. Do you have a personal story that comes to mind of someone who's benefited from the Cancer yeah. Assistance Program? Actually, I do. Um, so this was a client who I saw, this was soon after the, the pandemic started mm. in, in March. And things were so chaotic. Um, and what I noticed was that at that time, especially, a lot of family members were very hesitant to have their, their parents go into hospice or long-term care because visits were completely seized. They were not allowed to see their parents. So I had um, a client who um, was palliative and um, she, her goal was to be at home with her children and she required a number of pieces of equipment. Um, so some the Lynn was able to provide, but she required a wheelchair, a walker, a bath chair, um, I called the cancer assistance program who was still operating amidst all the, the chaos and everything else shutting down. They were still there. Um, I went and picked it up and I provided it to the client and, you know, she was able to use that equipment for two weeks. But in those two weeks, the daughter called me and said, you know what, Sarah, you have helped um, us so much. And because before she wasn't even able to access her bathroom, she wasn't able to access the shower. So by me getting um, a commode, she was able to complete her toileting. And, you know, by me being able to get that equipment from the cancer assistance program without having them there, I really don't know how they would have been able to get that equipment because like I said, everything was basically shut down <laughs> at that time. And the family's goal was for her to spend her remaining days yeah. at home, maintain her <clears throat> dignity, maintain her quality of life. And that was, we were able to do that because of, of the cancer assistance program. So, it's so good to hear a story like that yeah. because it uh, really, uh, enforces the, the importance of it and also mm -hmm. the uh, the volunteers who do this work oh, yeah. because there's a tremendous number of people that people that give the drives there's people making phone calls right now about uh, providing food packages mm -hmm. uh, on a monthly basis there's, there's just a whole variety of things yes there's a small and mighty staff there but it's uh, a largely volunteer yes. uh, run and of course everything's for free yeah. which means that uh, those require donations so mm -hmm. that those listening to this uh, podcast today, if they're so inclined and moved by the story you just told and the awareness of the need, uh, perhaps they might uh, go on the Cancer Assistance Program's website, cancerassist.ca, 
easy to find a way to donate, and that would be really helpful to keep this program alive and well in, in Hamilton. Yes. Um, I, I think I've exhausted all the questions mm -hmm. I had, but maybe you want to leave a final message for our listeners about occupational therapy. That's yeah. Important. Yeah. So when we think about, you know, um, just our, our, our daily life and what gives us purpose, what gives us meaning, um, what gives us those feelings of, of self-efficacy and, and productivity, oftentimes it's completing those meaningful activities and those occupations. And, you know, being able to perform those occupations in a safe manner, um, you know, in a way that brings you happiness, in a, in a way that still makes you feel fulfilled and being able to do it as independently as you possibly can, all those things contribute to our health and our quality of life. And it's so important to not think of health, like I said earlier, not as merely the absence of disease, but complete physical, mental, and social well-being. And, um, you know, as, as Dr. Evans uh, stated before, which I I'm so happy he did is, you know, don't just wait for your physician to identify the need for occupational therapy. Advocate for yourself, advocate for your family members, um, call the Lynn. You know, they're a wonderful agency and we are so fortunate in Hamilton to have the services that we have and the access that we have. So if you're concerned, pick up the phone and call the Lynn and they will set you up with the necessary home care services. And um, I also, again, want to emphasize how um, amazing the cancer assistance program has been and I want to echo Dr. Evans your, your statements about how important it is to donate to make sure that these that this program can can continue. Well thank you so much uh, yeah. Sarah for being my guest today on yeah. the podcast. You've really been uh, amazing in educating me and I hope all the people listening I, it's, it's this is an important area of, of health care provision that doesn't get enough attention and it's been wonderful that you've shared your experience and expertise with us today. I also want to just remind listeners that uh, there are other podcasts that we've done that you can access uh, at either the Cancer Assist website or um, through the various um, sites like Apple or Spotify or your favorite uh, supplier of podcasts. Um, and importantly, if you have a diagnosis of a particular cancer and you do go to the Cancer Assistance Program's website, you'll find about three years of um, of um, podcasts and uh, prior recordings on various topics of so various cancers. And so if you want to find out about uh, cancer of the ovary or the uh, uh, brain or lung, you'll find podcasts that will have information of me interviewing specialists here in the Hamilton community who uh, can enlighten you about the current best treatments. And keep listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and you've been listening to Dr. Bill Evans at the Cancer Assist Show. This has been the Cancer Assist Show, brought to you by the Cancer Assistance Program.